As we're studying from 2 Timothy, I believe we have here some of the most important, concentrated, focused material about what the church and Christian ministry is, how it's defined, what some of the essential virtues and attributes of ministry and what the church is all about, who the church is. And a couple of you asked me before class started again about this, the idea that the church is not an institution, but a living organism. Um, there are different analogies. The head and body is just one. Another would be a building with foundation. But the foundation is Christ and his apostles. And the church grows as stone by stone, living stone is added. And that happens through conversions. And then the local church are people who have been converted, who are locally, generally connected with each other and caring for one another and praying for one another. And the church grows through conversion, not through attendance. Okay? Not through the size of the organization. Now, that doesn't decrease attendance. Attendance. And we'll get to that when I'm preaching to 1 Corinthians when we get into chapter 14. But as a matter of fact, we have some folks that are hugely important to us that we rarely see, but we're still connected. And ultimately, we'll be connected together with the Lord. And we have the marriage supper of the Lamb and th these other things to look forward to. But in the meantime, the confusion lies in the fact that the entire Western civilization church of one sort or another is institutional rather than organic. And the institution can have 95% people who don't even know the Lord or more, and it's not much concern to the institution itself as long as the institution is paying its bills and growing and surviving and flourishing. And as I've said before, institutions, whatever they are, exist for their own survival. And they will do what they have to do to survive, including, in the case of the religious one, choke off the gospel. And Eric and I have testified how we saw that happen. So the answer, in my opinion, is to go back to the primary source documents, which we're told to do, in, in any kind of theology or if, debate or learning, you have to go back to primary sources if you want to be taken seriously. The primary source for us is the scriptures, okay? Inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to us by the Lord. And we must go back to the primary sources to define the church biblically. Furthermore, I will argue this, and I think it's very easy to prove this, that the theologians, and I, Eric and I, Eric got there when the good ones had left mostly, but I sat under some great teachers, both, we have a phone going off here somehow, uh, both in North Central Bible College where they had gone to scholarship in order to ward off the um, uh, apostolic movement, the William Branhams of the world that had damaged them so badly, they fled to biblical scholarship to try to ward off the attacks of the pietists and the apostles and prophets and the miracle workers. And then when in uh, seminary, when I got there in 92, just part of Providence, I didn't know where I was going or why, I just ended up there. Uh, I knew why, I was told to go there. But the fact is, they had brought in the conservative in order to ward off neo-orthodoxy. Um, and so, I thank God for that. Here's what I can tell you. The scholars and the theologians know the biblical definition of the church. I have nothing to invent. 
by saying I'm going to write about this, I'm not saying I'm inventing anything. And I, I, both at North Central and at Bethel, the solid theologians could define the church biblically and did so. Ironically, the churches they attended were not those churches because they rarely exist. The churches that my teachers at North Central went to were institutions. And the same goes with pastors. When I had a pastor, held a pastor's meeting in the late 80s, early 90s, wanting to work some of this out, and when we started critical issues, they could come to the pastor's meeting and tell you biblical definitions, but they couldn't go back to their own church and preach those things. Why? Because the institution has to survive. And the person who has a position in the institution has to survive. And if you uh, begin focusing ministry on biblically, as we're going to study here in Timothy, you're going to lose three-fourths or more of whoever is in your church. You'll lose your job, you'll lose your friends, and you'll be considered a failure by your peers. And so the charismatics, for example, they came to the pastor's meeting. We presented papers. We talked to each other. We could agree. They go back. Same stuff went on in the church they did before. Because they couldn't rock the boat if they wanted to survive. And uh, I wasn't so good at surviving, so I ended up getting fired for other reasons. But this was in the early 90s. It said the seminary, but that's Providence. So what we're going to do, what are we going to do? 2 Timothy 2, 21 to 25. Let me just kind of read through this. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, we've covered what these things are, he'll be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those. Here we talked about this, so I'm not going to redo it, but look at the phrase here. What does the church look like? With those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. How many call upon the Lord with a pure heart compared to the one who want their social or religious needs met? There's a different thing. Who want to have a nice place so their kids are raised in a religion? How many people want to be respectable? Um, I've talked about that. The only way anyone can have a pure heart is by the cleansing of the blood of Jesus. And the ones who gather because of the effect of the gospel having cleansed us and made us saints, sanctified ones, are those who want to call upon the Lord. And we're not claiming how pure our heart is based on our claims. It's what God did for us. And we recognize others as we come together who love the Lord and want him to be the center of our lives by his grace. And so this is the church defined biblically. It was very hard to find any evangelical who would argue with that. And it's just as hard to find a church that will practice it. And so that's the dilemma that needs to be unpacked a little bit. Um, So we talked about that and I've mentioned here at the end of this slide, that was a couple weeks ago, that godly preparation cannot be secular. It has to be something God does by his grace. And so I want to make, read a statement, and then we'll go to the next slide. <clears throat> this is about what I just said here. With those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. Remember that phrase. This shows why, this is my statement, this shows why eschatology and ecclesiology are connected. Eschatology, study of the end times. Ecclesiology, study of the church. Are connected. We are prepared for good works, which is preparation for the marriage supper of the Lamb as well. The church must be those who call on the Lord from a pure heart and not composed of religious consumers with felt needs or an institution composed of the descendants of Christians 
are now held together by forms, formalism, traditions, and fear of loss of status with the religious culture, which usually includes the earthly family, mostly unconverted. The liturgical church, with, with pomp and form, uh, with pomp and formalism, rarely is filled with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart, because this only applies to the regenerate. Yes. Uh, Norm. Uh, what, what would your advice be to people who live in areas, the only churches that are anywhere near them are institutional churches. They would like to attend a, a, a better church, but there's nothing, no options for them. That's the number one question I've heard for decades. <laughs> okay. And is, um, there's not one thing any of us can do to make institutional churches quit being what they are. And so what happens, I'll tell you what happens. This is more observational than prescriptive. What happens is they find one another within that group. If there's a handful of people in a whatever kind of, by the way, because something's evangelical, by denomination doesn't mean it is an institutional. You probably know that. So there may be three, four, five, six people find each other and they gather together for prayer, Bible study. Sometimes they, they do a lot of the things that Christians do. And then formally, most groups have some version of the Lord's Supper. They may read scripture and they may see, sing things. But what they generally lack is being fed the pure word of God by their leaders. Right. That's the thing that's glaringly lacking. And oftentimes, as you know, we all know, we fill that in by finding Elster Big on the radio or something like that. Okay, but I'm not saying that's the answer. I think the answer is get the church defined biblically and agree that that's the definition and then ask ourselves, what are we building? And what is the need? And how can we, if there's a move of the work of the Spirit where a bunch of people are regenerated evangelically through the gospel, what, what should happen? Should people gather together as they did in Acts, and in the sense that elders come forth and we start gathering, or do we do like Billy Graham did and send them back to Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church? It's almost guaranteed they'll get absorbed back into the institution. And I, I realize criticizing Billy Graham is probably not everybody's cup of tea, but I don't mind doing it. Amen. Nice guy, but the fact is the institution will just eat up everybody and they may be a little more vital than they were but they're starving on the vine. What did the Lord say to Peter? Feed my sheep. And so what should be, so what about the leaders? I'll get to you, Brian, in a second. What about the leaders? Nothing is more important for the elders, preachers, that they're part of the local church. In my mind, and I, I believe this for years, if I don't get anything else done, I want to have a sermon that reflects the pure word of God as much as is possible I could do that. And sometimes I've been so sick I can hardly halt through the most basic thing. So if there's a reason that we're diminished, we're still putting all of whatever little efforts left into that teaching of the word of God because they need the pure word of God. That is what causes the sheep to grow. Um, and I would tell any pastor that put your focus into the preaching of that word of God. A good model for that over the years have been John MacArthur. If you do that for enough decades, you'll know theology. Um, and I would also say this, that 
we need the biblical definition in our minds, even if hardly anybody we know is in a church that's not institutional. It'll also affect elders, how we, how we make decisions, and I'll tell you how. I know in my case, over the 50 years of mostly preaching, the thing that was the biggest burden was a sense of failure. I found a letter to the elders from like 96 when we were down 24th and Nicollet, the group I was with. And I, I have it somewhere. I found it on an old word perfect format and converted it and read it. And I said, well, it looks like this is about it. We can't pay the bills. Um, the, the building's just paid off. Can't make the payroll. I was down to me. It was down in the late 90s. Down to me is the only employee and volunteers for everything else and volunteers, including me, for the building. And we have a way, some of you were around, the building was too big. It was, it was, it was, it seemed like a hopeless situation. But what was sitting there was this thing that was created to be an institution and it had to be maintained and we didn't have the resources to maintain it. And uh, I didn't, at the time, I wasn't thinking that these necessarily like this, but there's no way to think any way that I'm failing. Here I am, uh, almost 50 years old, put all these hours and hours and hours and hours and lifetime of taking care of people and visiting the elderly and doing doing all this, and it fails. I can't, I don't know what to do. That was in the late 90s. It turned around enough that we survived and were able to get out of that part of town. But if you're not thinking about an institution, uh, allow me to do this. This is really so helpful to try to think about writing a book about this. If you're not thinking about the survival of an institution, then the institution failing isn't the end of the world. But to fail to care for the flock would be malpractice. And being forced from just flat-out reality, the only thing that could be done that made any sense was to care for the flock, even if it means you, you can't pay the bills and you whatever you got to do. You've got to care for the flock because they're precious. And the, the flock, and particularly in my mind, the elderly, at the time I wasn't thinking I was going to become one soon, um, you can't let those folks down. They, they need to be loved. They need to be prayed for. They need to be cared for. And this is what they have. You've got to care for the flock. The flock is the church. The building isn't the church. The assets aren't the church. It's the flock. And if we can't have a big choir and all the things that we'd had at one time, we got to care for the flock. And that's uh, the only thing I could do at the time. And in the meantime, we things turned around as far as the location or whatever. But... Here's what I'll say, and then I'll have Brian ask his question. If you're a pastor, elder, anywhere you hear this, the kingdom of God grows every time a soul is converted. That person built on that rock as part of the Lord's church, as a building block, is forever there. And wherever they may be locally, our job is to care for them. To, to teach them and to be there for one another. And you did not fail if you did care for those folks. And if you care for one another, you're not failing. If you love the Lord and you love one another, you're not failing. And if you uh, are confessing the truth of the gospel to the lost world, you're not failing. And forget about professionalism and professional pride. Forget about success and think about faithfulness. I think that's what we're seeing right here uh, to Timothy. And to try to do that is everything is against you as far as the world is concerned, including the religious community. 
And we have to live with the idea that we may be in the eyes even of our own families and our peers. We might have to live with the fact that we appear to fail. But remember, 1 Corinthians 4 or 5, the Lord, don't go on passing judgment before the time. Wait until the Lord comes. Why? Because he knows the thoughts and motives of the heart. I'd be more worried about the thoughts and motives of the heart, which I am, than whether our religious peers think we're great or not. So I don't know if it answers it, but I don't think there is an answer. God's elect are scattered in institutions, and they have been since 380. Yes. In regards to his question, I think a good example is our uh, old elder, Jim Palmer. He moved to a place, and he went to, when he first got there, he looked at a lot of different churches attended there, and he couldn't find a good, solid church. Finally, he settled on a church. He, I would imagine he took the best of that was available to him. And then, I hate to use the word, but he infiltrated, okay? And then he started to get to know people, and he was listening. I would talk to him all the time. He would tell me about some false doctrine and stuff that was going on there. But then he eventually got into teaching a Bible study. And then he would teach the Bible study, and it would go on and on. And I can't prove this, but I would believe that some of the people in the institutional church would hear the, 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 the lessons that he was doing, and God has his elect in spread there. out in there. And, and I believe that a lot of people, just from the stories he would tell me, they were interested in They're wanting to hear the more word of, God. of what Jim would say. Yeah, and Eric and I have run into that different places where we travel to speak. The, when you're born again, as a newborn babe in Christ, you desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And there's no such thing as a born-again Christian regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit who's not going to grow when the word of God is purely taught to them. And that's my point about this is well-known in scholarly circles. The definition isn't unique. It's known. It's just not practiced. I've heard um, when I studied church history under Dr. Travis, they wanted to know, and I also ran into this in the theology class. After the Reformation, now that the Roman system, which is the institution, they end all institutions, so to speak, is like the grandest institution, um, that also strangles the gospel as much as any of them. Um, well, if the Roman Catholic Church is not the church, then how do we define a church? we got all these little groups getting together. Here's how they define it. Wherever the word of God is purely taught and the sacraments, they, they, didn't, they weren't done with their sacramentalism yet, the sacraments are administered according to the Lord's institution, which we would call the means of grace, which they, they understood, what's ordained by God. Wherever the word of God is purely taught and the sacraments administered according to the Lord's institution, it's not to be doubted that there a church exists. Simple fellowship, like Acts 2.42. Yes, brother. Yeah, uh, Romans 10.17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Right. Right? So. Right. Amen. Amen. So, dear ones, let's, we got to make, we got to get to a slide. This is a review of last week. So do you see what I mean? Um, First Timothy has something like that, too. The goal of our instruction, you can look that one up. Let's get to this slide. Now, here we have 2 Timothy 2, 23, 24. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong. Let me read, do I have 25? Yeah. Um, With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And I must say that in the 80s, after the group that uh, I'd been a part of that had bought that building and everything changed and the main group mostly disbanded and 
A lot of people were disillusioned, and we ended up with a group of people with kids that wanted to raise them in the fear of the Lord, which is the right thing to do. I had been in deliverance and inner healing ministry in the 70s. And we considered if people had problems, we assume everybody said they're a Christian is. And so if I'm a Christian, I have these problems. Well, we assume the problems are caused by leftovers from the old life, and therefore they needed inner healing and deliverance. So we had inner healing, healing of memories, casting out demons, uh, rebuking demons, people manifesting demons. So that was going on in the 70s. And then one thing after another, it said, came through town. This is the newest thing. It's going to solve everybody's problem. The newest wave of God, newest wave of the Spirit. Then that would falter. Then another one, that would falter. Another one, that would falter. And they'd say, well, well, there's problems and scandals. And we end up with a bunch of people thinking, we've had enough of this. What are we going to do? Our kids can't have all this instability. And we, why don't we teach the Bible? Because it doesn't change. The latest guy with the great move of God fizzled out. And they never have a good handle on the Bible, at least in any comprehensive way. So we start teaching the Bible. These verses, 24 through 26, I've just got part of them, changed my life. And here's how they changed my life as we start teaching the Bible. I thought, this is exactly what we didn't do. We used to have three guys saying over people writhing on the floor, come out, thou foul spirit. Come out of this person. How dare you attack a Christian? And we were yelling and screaming and casting out demons and doing all this stuff. Um, Sermon of the Lord must be patient, <laughs> kind, gentleness, correcting. I thought, my goodness, we had the most raucous meetings going on that anybody ever saw. How's that gentle and kind? And then if you go on down, I don't think I have enough slides here. You go down and it says, having been taken captive by the devil to do his will. Is that what it says in verse 26? You want to, want to read that? I thought, well, this is the people we were trying to help. And we were doing the opposite. We were doing everything opposite of what Paul told Timothy to do. Every meeting was raucous. <laughs> Every deliverance was loud. And we were doing this, that, all these things happened. And I thought, this isn't what God said. Why don't we just gently correct people in air, care for people, pray for people, teach the word of God, and trust God to change people. And then as that led eventually into realizing from Colossians that people are transferred out of the kingdom, all out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son at conversion. It wasn't like you're converted and now the devil still got most of you and you got to fight that part out, which is what Jack Winter taught, who was our leader. You got to get the demons out, just like you had to get the enemies out of the promised land. Do you see the difference? It was shocking. I read this. This is shocking. How could I spend five years of my life doing exactly what God said not to do and think I was helping people? Well, I finally realized I wasn't helping people, and that's what caused the crisis, and I started questioning everything. Brother. Oh, yeah. Verse 26, it says, And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Those were people opposing. So this would be people in the church that are opposing the gospel which is pretty amazing. So what do we do? We teach the pure word of God. What happens when we do? God converts the lost. God's redeemed, grow in the grace and knowledge of God. God's redeemed, start praying for one another, caring for one another, showing up for one another. People have different gifts. They start using them. And there's a congregation. There's a, a flock. And people evangelize. And our attention isn't the survival of a multi-million dollar institution. It's the survival of Christian fellowship wherever it might meet. Yeah. And I'm not saying that people that have 
big buildings and educational uh, processes are necessarily compromised. I don't have the authority to say that. But I would say whoever would be in that situation needs to think very carefully that the church is defined biblically and that the institution part of it doesn't consume the grace and the reality of pure, simple fellowship. Yes, Brother Ron. Years ago, I heard a pastor say, this is, this is something quick. He said, sometimes church growth looks like the church gets smaller. And it did for him. As it got better and the word started being preached, the church got smaller for a right. while. Right. Church growth is uh, every time somebody is converted. Thank you, Ron. Good point. Every time somebody's converted, the Lord's church grows. And the new convert may or may not come to the fellowship of whoever it was that was the witness. That should not matter to us any more than it mattered to Paul that if the moment he was in, here he's in Roman prison, whether Timothy was in Ephesus under God's providence or somewhere else where different people, just read Acts, they go different places. But where you end up, the church is still the church. Maybe a handful of a little uh, home or by a river or somewhere or maybe big, but the church is always those same people. And once they're built in, they don't go away. They'll be there at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Does that make sense? All right, now let's go back and look at this. This one I think we're going to have to say, oh, me to a little bit. I know I do. Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. Well, I had to look that word up. We know what foolish is, although it's kind of a unique one right here. Foolish would be lacking the sort of education a child would have. Has the pedutos with an alpha privative. Um, it's, not, it's used um, 18 times in the Septuagint, but this is a hopox, meaning here and only here in the New Testament. That particular word for foolish would have to do with lacking basic instruction. The word speculations caught my attention, so I did a comprehensive search in the New Testament for the word. It is zetasis, zetasis, zeta, eta, tau, eta, sigma, iota, sigma, zetasis. And and it uh, first use is in the Gospel of John 3.25 so a dispute occurred on the part of John's disciples with a Jew concerning purification a dispute here when you look it up in the context it's a speculation that creates a dispute over something that you'll never solve it's sort of like the the oral traditions what, what's the sin, what constitutes work what do they call that? Haggadah? No. Is that right? There's oral tradition and written ones, and eventually it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. How many of you know legal codes keep getting bigger? How about city legal codes, state legal codes, federal? Bigger, 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 bigger. Books, 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 books. Lawyers, lawyers, lawyers. And so you're in violation. We don't know what, but it's got to be something. Okay. Well, we don't want to build a church on speculations. Okay? We need something solid that can be identified as applicable and not merely a speculation. Now, let me look at some other speculations. It's used here in the New Testament, um, I think, seven times. One, two, three, four, five, six. I think seven usages in the New Testament. Acts 15, 2. After there was no little strife and debate, so we're debate there, speculation, by Paul and Barnabas against them, they appointed Paul and Barnabas and some others <coughs> from among them to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem concerning this issue. This was the debate about whether to force the Gentiles to keep Jewish food laws. So they had the speculations going on. Here's that word. 
and it was not easy to resolve. It went throughout the New Testament. We see dispute about that. They agreed on some things, but by Galatians, we're back at it again. Acts 15, 7. And after there was much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, men and brothers, you know that in the early days, God chose among you through my mouth that the Gentiles should hear the message of the gospel and believe. Then he came to what he thought was a reasonable uh, conclusion. Acts 25, 20. And because I was at a loss with regard to the investigation that word speculation concerning these things, I asked if he was willing to go off to Jerusalem, be judged there concerning these things. That's Acts 25, 20, when they brought Paul before authorities. Now, 1 Timothy 6, 4, another use. In 1 Timothy, he's conceited and understanding nothing, but having a morbid interest concerning controversies. There's our words, atasis, speculations, and disputes about words from which come envy, strife, slanders, and evil suspicions. Dear ones, we are all drawn to those things. We're literally drawn to them. Born-again Christians are drawn to speculations like they were magnets. We love them. They're more interesting than what we know is true. But it's not to our benefit. And so I want to challenge me and all of us. Let's take seriously what the Lord told Timothy here through Paul and at very least identify the difference between a speculation and solid truth from Scripture about what God said and or facts from general revelation. You can assume that there's ETs and speculate about it, but it's not going to further the work of God. You can assume conspiracy theories. Those are, they never go away. They always exist. They're spoken about in Isaiah. Conspiracy theories cannot be resolved other than through whoever's omniscient. And only God's omniscient. We all love them. But we've got to think twice. If I can't talk to us, I can't talk to anybody. We need rock-solid truth, not speculations. I didn't make this up. found it right here. Yes, uh, Luann. Yeah, and I'm just thinking, um, because like you had said, teaching scripture, we're going to be judged by what the word um, says. Amen. So it's, you know, critically important that we know it. But I'm thinking as you're going through all of this, but the chosen that's so popular right now, because a lot of it in there is speculation. And maybe if you have already a grasp of scripture, some of those speculations won't, you know, shipwreck you. But what happens is because when they try to fill in the details of what scripture doesn't give us, well, pretty soon that's more attractive to us because it gives us details that scripture didn't. And so, you know, we end up jettisoning scripture for something visual on the screen. You could yeah, even say There's the always Ten more interest you know. in the speculation. You're right. Um, I have some personal experience with this when I decided to fight the King James only speculations. And I spent hours and hours and hours. This is when I was in seminary. I started with it. Found out data that most people could never find because I had access to the original documents from the 19th century from the people who were being used to fuel the speculations. Wrote about it, thought I dealt with it, chased down some of the claims by people. And as soon as I did, out comes another book with a different bunch. And then they start talking about uh, Texas Receptus, and then that went on. And it still goes on. Somebody comes to church for the first time, call me pastor, I want to have lunch with you, or Bob, I want to have lunch with you. Eric's the pastor. I'm an old man they allowed to be around here. And I go have lunch, King James only, or Texas Receptus only. Ah! Here's the thing. You cannot ever get rid of them. And when they're proven wrong, they don't repent, they don't blush, they don't slow down, they go to something else. And it'll wear Timothy down. It'll wear any uh, teacher, 
preacher, elder, if you start allowing the speculations to fill up your plate, it'll wear you down, it'll grind you down, it'll burn up your time, it'll confuse you, and in the end, they'll hate you and they'll go somewhere else because you're using the wrong Bible. And that's exactly what happened. And I thought, I spent all of that time and they still went somewhere else so they could have the King James preach to them whether they understand it or not. And I said, okay, I'm done. I'm going to start with the Greek. Go, yeah, 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 tell me. My Greek is no good. They said, literally, your Greek Bible's no good. Okay, I have the critical text and I have notes with every manuscript that contains it and I can use apparatus to see which reading from which manuscript is stronger. I don't have to go to your uh, Texas Receptus. And they leave. That's what speculations look like. Say, so listen, I did the work. I've got pages and pages of pages, literally hundreds and hundreds of them, all different colored pens on the Greek with notations. Here it is. I did all this work, and you're telling me I'm wasting my time. I'm not helping the flock because I don't have a King James Bible in my hand. Do you know how abusive that is? Do you know how wicked that is? Do you know how many people around the United States and Britain have been robbed of a Bible they're able to read by people who do that? So tell me about speculations. I've had it. I want to know rock-solid, clear teaching that we, can, that we can test for validity, the mouth of two or three witnesses, not circular reasoning. Yes, brother. Um, is there a correlation between speculations and applications? Well, no, they're different. Applications derive, there is in a sense that applications derive logically from the text of Scripture. Eric has taught about that, and I've taught about it. We, we do that. Our applications must come from Scripture. That's why we had a church split. Some folks wanted to be lawgivers, and Eric and I want all of our applications to be controlled by Scripture itself, not by the desire to tell people how they should do things beyond Scripture, which would be that food type of thing, too. Go ahead. Yeah, amen. One of the revolutionary passages for us is that Deuteronomy 29, 29, the things that the Lord has revealed belong to us and our children forever. The things that the Lord has not revealed belong to the Lord alone. And so when people will ask me questions that aren't revealed in the scriptures, I will simply have to say, I don't know. Um, and that's the best course of action. A lot of the church, when it comes to various doctrines, they like to focus where there isn't clear revelation from God. For example, when you go to a prophecy conference, how much of it is really focused on the newspaper versus exegesis through what the scriptures are saying? One of the issues that I've seen in a lot of prophecy conferences is people will claim all of the signs are happening in the church age. Once you realize the Olivet Discourse, what God is actually saying, that the signs are within the future 70th week, and that that event is a signless event, now you don't have to get into this vain speculations as to whether any given event right now is fulfilling the Olivet Discourse because the Olivet Discourse isn't about the church age. It's about the future 70th week of Daniel. That's another example. Bob had proven the King James-only heresy to be just that, but the people who buy into these heresies, they'll just keep going because they're not content with what the scriptures have revealed. They want to focus on the secret things. And so that's what I think we should ask ourselves. Is this something that's revealed in Scripture, or am I going to focus on the secret things that the Lord hasn't revealed? Good point. See, the speculations are more philosophical than anything else. Um, the one we have here, and there's one more left in the, my list here, and that was in Titus. Titus 3.9, but avoid foolish controversies and speculations and genealogies and contentions and quarrels about the law for they are useless and fruitless. So we can grind it out about anything and everything or we can focus on teaching the word of God, applying the word of God and bringing church discipline as needed and or exhortation to each other. 
and no teacher is above being corrected by anybody. The body of Christ is one. The, the analogy in, of the body in one, uh, excuse me, 1 Timothy 12, the little, the little toe has something to say to the right arm. We're all part of it. And we need to learn from one another. Now, we don't want philosophical, philosophical inquiries. We want to know what's right and wrong, what's true and false, and stand our ground. But we do so humbly knowing that there's things we don't know. Also knowing this, no matter what is going on out there, which there's always plenty, God is going to keep us and we can know the difference between truth and error, right and wrong. It may mean we don't have a lot of friends out there in the world, but we really, the world's against us. Right? Ignorant would be un- uninstructed, uneducated. Um, so I have a printout about that. Now, let's go on here. They produce quarrels. Quarrel, quarrelsome means, for, according to Bauer Danker, Arndt Gidrich, to engage in heated dispute without use of without use of weapons. In other words, for word disputes, fighting word disputes. And uh, this would be very common. It happened in Acts. They gathered to try to settle such disputes. But that's why we think of it this way. How about a greater to lesser? Here's the greater, the teaching of the word of God. Even at that, we have to make sure we understand. We understand context. We have a good hermeneutic, authorial intent. But supposing we can understand it, which we can, I believe it's clarity of scripture. Even at that, we have difficulties because we have to make the application and people have, we have personalities. We sometimes rub each other the wrong way, but we have something we can go back to. Whatever's going on, we can go back to it. What does the scripture say? What does God call us to do and be? We have a solid ground of the teaching, pure teaching of the word of God. But what if the foundation isn't the pure word of God? It's speculations. How do you have common ground with speculations? Some are speculating this food is healthy and this one's unhealthy. That, that always comes up. There's, they had food disputes there. I'm telling you, you never get away from food disputes. But one way or another, we're going to have a glorified body. But think of other things. Yes, we can have opinions. We can decide that one car is better than another. We can, we dis, I disagree with what's being taught out there in the world, almost full tilt. I don't believe it's a sin to produce carbon dioxide. It's a sin you cannot repent of. I've testified before a judge about that. Carbon dioxide is not air pollution, so public policy should not be based on getting rid of what we need for the earth to be green. And I don't think they even do a good job of that. I have an argument about that I haven't heard anybody else make, and I heard, nor I've heard anybody refute when I've given it. Okay, so let's say we could. I'll just show you an example. Let's just say we could control the mountain part per million carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And we had the way to take all the excess and stick it in the ocean or whatever they're trying to do. What amount would it be so that the climate would no longer change? I've asked that to people that were hostile about this. Well, uh, you know what they said? You have a well-laid-out argument. Well, give me the answer. Should we set it at 250? Should we set it at 450? Should we set it at 200? What's the number so it doesn't change anymore? Why will they not answer it? Because it's going to change anyhow. They don't know what it is, and it's going to change no matter what you do. So the second question then would be, so then why are we assuming this is the only factor? So wait, so that's just general revelation. But I'm not called to do that. I'm called to teach the word of God. But imagine, do we have something more concrete upon which to build our faith, our fellowship, 
and our uh, sanctification and our hope for glory than the amount of carbon dioxide in the air. Oh, yeah, we do. Do we know more surely what will sanctify us than what will know what will make the climate more stable? Yes, we do. What is that thing that we know more surely and certainly than climate? It's that God uses his means to get the outcome of sanctification and purity. And it comes through the means of grace, which includes most primarily the teaching of the word of God. There are battles to enter, battles to lay aside. Uh, it's, now this, uh, knowing that they produce quarrels, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome to battle, word fights, makamai, battle, okay? The slave of the Lord must not battle, but strong adversity of Allah, gentle to be toward all, able to teach, putting up with the bad. I do pray that we'd be able to do that. And that really struck me to the heart in the 80s, changed the whole direction of what I thought was important. I can't keep battling everybody, and I'm just as uh, obnoxious as anybody else. And uh, old age can help that. And I'm not making any claims. But if I teach the word of God, it'll do them some good. It'll do me some good. Why don't we just teach the word of God and put our energy into studying to show ourselves approved. Make sure that we know the word of God and then teach that. And don't skip things. Don't skip what's important. Don't skip the whole counsel of God. Don't take a sentence out of a paragraph and focus on the sentence, but teach the whole word of God. And to be kind. Why, should not we, why shouldn't we be kind to God's elect, the people that are with us, the people that God saved, the, the people that God put together in the body? Why not be kind to them? If we can't be kind to each other, are we going to be kind to the wicked that we have to work with? We, we need to be kind to all, but we, we have to start by being kind in the family of God and to be patient when we're wrong. This is going to take a work of grace. It's going to take a major work of grace for this to happen. So this verse changed my life in the 80s, and I thank God for this. Had that not happened, I, I don't know, it was just a total revolution for me to see these verses. Uh, Dr. Yarborough says, admittedly, there's a tension in this matter. At the same time, Timothy should stay out of certain kinds of conflicts. In other words, he's, he's asking this, how do you fight the good fight of the faith and not be quarrelsome? There's, maybe this is Proverbs, right? How do you stand firm and fight and not be quarrelsome? Are you thinking with me? Uh, so here's what Dr. Yarbrough says. There's tension in this matter. At the same time, Timothy should stay out of certain kinds of conflicts in some and perhaps most situations. He should fight the good fight of the faith, 1 Timothy 6.12. Publicly rebuke elders who are sinning, 1 Timothy 5.20. Guard the good deposit, 2 Timothy 1.14. Suffer like a military combatant, 2 Timothy 2.3. And perform other proactive, if not aggressive, functions. No pastor can or should avoid, always avoid disputes. To do so is to ensure that wolves will take over the flock. And then he says, see Acts 20, 28 to 30. Did, you didn't know, but that's what we're studying right now. Just to remind you. I keep putting on the slide so we know we're going there. See? <coughs> so, the... The key is in 2 Timothy 2.23, he says, foolish and stupid. The things that will arouse massive passion are often things that in eternity are actually of no account. Of no account. And all the passion. We only have so much passion, emotional energy. It seemed endless maybe at one point. 
but eventually you burn out of it. And if you burn out all your energy, uh, I, I know the easy way to do that, get angry and yell at everybody on the street that's driving. <laughs> if you think that doesn't do anything, get them. Oh, no, I'm nice to my wife. <laughs> so just look at it as some amount that can get drained down. The patience needs to be there for each of us, for one another, and, it's, and for our families. Uh, the word uh, pugnacious uh, is another important word, placate, no, excuse me, plague taste, which means a bully. It also used in Titus 1 7. It says in Titus 1 7, the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self willed, not quick tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, but not fond of sword, sword gain. In other words, we're winning the battle by patiently teaching the truth, not shouting louder than somebody else. The word of God is powerful in its own right. The louder, the louder we, we yell doesn't make our... Some people are good at that. They yell so loud the other people retreat from the battle. Now, what are these things that we need to avoid, the quarrels? They're basically the, f the fruits of the flesh. Idolatry, sorcery, enmities, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, words that works of the flesh. Um, so we have solid ground to, to simply teach. And I have some more material on this. We'll pick this up next week. But I will, let me share this. We don't need to be daunted. Um, the fact that the biblical definitions are not that hard to see, but they're rarely practiced, doesn't make us great and everybody else bad. It means the, the biblical definition of the church has been neglected. And I believe there's really strong evidence. This isn't just speculations. There's huge evidence that the institutional church filled mostly with the unregenerate, so therefore they're not even part of the church, is the reason why it's so hard to define the church. And I, I mentioned this, I'll, I'll do it again. Logo Software gave me a resource for free. Uh, I don't know how I got it, but it was uh, Abraham Kuyper, a famous Dutch Calvinist from the 19th century, who had a sermon and saying the church is both institution and organism. So I was of interest. I think I mentioned this. So I read the, the sermon. Abraham Kuyper, cited by Rick Warren, great church growth guy, as a great man from the past in this regard, Abraham Kuyper, Dutch uh, person who combined politics and the state church and all this with supposedly the real church. He claimed the institutional church did not exist before uh, 300 some AD. You go back before that, there's no institutional church. That's according to the, the foremost expert on it. So that is, here's a simple question. If the institutional church did not exist until after Constantine, my question is this. Does that mean the church didn't exist? No. The Lord said, I'll build my church. It had to exist. There's churches addressed in Revelation. Did problems exist? Yes. All the things we had to deal with. So why would it be a crazy idea to apply the biblical definition which we have from Scripture alone and define the church, go back to the Scripture? Why is that crazy? Somebody tell me. I don't think it is. So why don't we do it? Because there's a price to pay. That's why. But we're going to do it. And that's what Eric and I are committed to and the elders are committed to. We'll just keep putting it out there. Pray uh, that I know I need to write about this. And we'll pray for Jessica as well. I've, 
my heart breaks with, I literally, before the, her stroke happened, I was thinking, what would I do without her? And uh, we can't live in fear, of, but uh, we're gonna go down with her son Taylor and uh, Marie, yeah, who's gonna have a baby soon. We're gonna go drive down Tuesday, but pray for Jessica. My heart breaks for her. I talked to her yesterday. She so badly wants to do what she's done. And at this point, it's not there to do. She, she can't. And I love Jessica so much. She's been one of the greatest blessings in my life since, she's, since her conversion. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord. We do pray for Jessica that you bring her restoration and bring us, her back to the flock with, with, uh, with the ability to function. And Lord, pray for uh, Eric as he preaches to us. And we're going to celebrate your supper today. May we think about what you've done for us. And Lord, we pray that help us to cling to the scriptures, to avoid speculations, to avoid being raucous and full of dispute and anger, but give us peaceful, pure teaching that we can share with one another so that we support each other and care for each other. Thank you, Lord, for all you've done in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you upstairs.